This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas, and welcome to our podcast. We're back to our regular compliment this week, and I'm joined by our emerging markets editor, Ed Reed and digital journalist, Hamish Penman. Hello, both. Um, we were just talking about how difficult September is going to be. Do you think we should just cancel offshore Europe? Do you think that's possible? Just cancel Energy Voice. Let's take the month off. Well, you know, if only, if only the woodpecker cried. But there, there we are. Um, yeah, we'll see how we get on, but it's going to be a tricky one. Um, we're going to start this week with Ithaca Energy, big operator involved in the Cambo and Rosebank schemes, who've issued their financial results this week. And uh, some stark warnings in there, Hamish. Yeah, the latest to come out with their half years on, on Wednesday this week. Um, it always seems to be that just when you think you're kind of done for the quarter, another set of financials comes bursting around the corner and and you're back to square one. It's about the only constant we have in this job. But um, refreshingly, Ithaca's had a bit more a bit more to them than, uh, than many do. Um, they kind of directly said a number of things that, that other firms have, I suppose, been kind of tiptoeing around, specifically on the windfall tax. Um, I'm not going to go into the financials here. They're online. You can go and find them there if they want to. I suppose the main takeaway is that Ithaca is scaling back its spend, primarily due to the uncertainty caused by the, the energy profits levy. Um, as a result of this, it's forecasting a production drop next year. So investment in the Greater Stella area has gone um, on top of other projects. It's partnered on like Total's, Total Energy, sorry, uh, Elgin Franklin, Repsol's, Sinopex, Montrose are both fields. Um, so it's, it is predicting quite a sharp drop in production for 2024. Uh, Chairman Gilab Myerson, he also blamed the EPL. Um, which has been tweaked a number of times in the last year and a bit since it was introduced uh, for slowing down the pace of pace of development on Rosebank and Cambo, both of which Ithaca has a hand in. It's obviously operator of Cambo having acquired Sicker Point. Um, I, I think the main point he was trying to make is that these projects are planning decades ahead, really. They're going to be producing for many, many years to come when they get started. And it's going to be very difficult to kind of make rational or educated calls now um, looking to the long term given that the the hand at the fiscal tiller is is so erratic Um, so that's a a big gripe of Ithaca's currently they also address the price floor so as we've discussed there is now a price floor built into the windfall tax there's a growing assumption that given where it's set just over $70 a barrel for oil for two consecutive quarters um, that it's unlikely really to come into play before the uh, sunset clause hits in in 2028 i mean particularly given the case that general inflation increasing demand for oil and gas we've seen european gas prices go up this week um on the threat of an impending strike in australia so it doesn't look like they'll be hitting those levels at least for one quarter anytime soon so everyone's kind of working under the assumption that the windfall tax is here to stay gilab myerson said that that Kind of despite that fact, there are no windfall profits in the industry at the moment, was his direct quote. And he said as much to analysts and investors on a call on Wednesday. So oil and gas prices are not way down, but they're down on considerably down on where they were when this policy was introduced. Uh, and the sector is not as flush with cash as it was. So this slashing of spend um, from Ithaca it follows the likes of Harbour, Enquest and others. Um, I think it's fair to call it probably a trend there now. And there's this real kind of cognitive dissonance with government where they want new oil and gas. They keep telling companies that they want them to drill. Um, and many kind of conservative politicians are claiming to be the party of the North Sea. At the same time, there is this 
complete unwillingness, I'd say, to create an environment that fosters any of those ambitions. So you're stuck in this cycle and, and it's of no use to anyone, really. And it's, it's, and it's not like there are even the monster tax receipts to show for it like there were last year. And the harbour results today kind of hammering home that point with, with what, losses of 8 million, was it? Yeah, yeah. Post-tax, 8 million. And that's uh, compared to 1 billion profit post-tax in the same period last year. So I think that perhaps underlines some of the points you're making there, Hamish. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the political cycle, we're back here again and again and again. I think the the bottom line is, regardless of what the Conservatives are saying, I think they know as well as everyone else that removing the windfall tax would probably be, rightly or not, uh, political suicide um, going into the, the general election. I just don't think the, the general public are, are ready for those kind of um, arguments. Um, around you know oil and gas companies profits and the prospect of removing um that taxation scheme i do wonder whether um labor are hearing this it may be that this is their problem to deal with uh, before too long um we have been you know hearing more again and again Keir Starmer coming up to Aberdeen to um discuss uh, policy for the oil and gas sector i think that's going to happen at some point um, based on what i'm hearing but uh when is, is the key issue. But Ithaca were quite, as I recall in the results, they were quite positive about some of the discussion with government, but, you know, as in they understand the problem, but there seems to be a disconnect there. The government seems to understand the problem, seems to be engaging with industry, but ultimately unwilling to remove the windfall tax, uh, even in the case now, as you say, Hamish, when there aren't any windfall profits to be had. Yeah, they seem to really insinuate that especially Gilad Myerson, that they do have the ears of politicians, which will really upset some people. Um, but they seem quite quite confident that they've made their case well and that they said that the government probably, they seem to insinuate quite heavily that the government is readying to change things. Now, what have we got? An autumn budget? It's not imminent, but it will be coming. So we'll see if there's anything in that. But they, yeah, they've... I can't remember what the direct line was, but it, it seemed to be that, that we think a change is on the way, or we hope a change is on the way. So we'll see if there's anything that comes of that. They were quite upbeat in other aspects as well. Quite a lot of drilling going on at Captain um, to kind of boost production levels there. There was also K2, quite a hotly tipped prospect. In fact, I think it bagged one of Wood McKenzie's wells to watch for 2023 gongs um so they've encountered hydrocarbons there they're kind of firming up estimates and um, with appraisal drilling currently so we're expecting those results next month so there were kind of positives to be taken away from this but i suppose the overarching message that they were trying to get across was was very much on the windfall tax and and the negative implications that's having um just another kind of lines i suppose from yesterday as well cambo which as i mentioned ithaca is operator of Shell is still trying to sell its stake in it, so we're about halfway through a six-month sales process currently. Um, it seems to be, as well, Ithaca say they're making good progress on finding a buyer. Um, I suppose it opens up the question again of who's likely to be in for it, especially given current tax rates, but but they seem quite, quite bullish that, that that kind of would be settled soon and that will allow them to progress the project to FID. Again, that comes with a lot of question marks because they're saying that uh, the windfall tax is slowing down progression on FIDs on, on Cambo and Rosebank. So, I mean, that it's, everything just seems to bubble down to it at the moment. Yeah, it's going to be interesting if, if Rosebank gets approved. Uh, how do these some of these comments um, 
play out alongside that. Um, so Ithaca is owned by Delek, right? Did they did 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 Ithaca give any sort of indication about? Uh, I suppose maybe sort of those investment dollars moving out of the UK North Sea and maybe somewhere else, maybe into the East Med. Yeah, they were um, perhaps a bit more open on this than they had been before. They, they very much made the case that the UK is our priority. That's where they see their synergies. That's They know the regulator. They know the area. They know their partners well. Um, so that is still their, their their chief operating area. But they said that like in line with any, in line with, most other companies, they are now considering opportunities overseas. So Norway, uh, the Netherlands and the US were the three that they directly uh, referenced. Um, but given their uh, their parent company, it would be surprising if they weren't looking at the East Meds currently as well, given that from reading your articles, Ed, it seems to be quite a hotbed of exploration and production at the moment. Well, yes, indeed. I've been trying to read uh, Dalek's uh, recently published uh, accounts, but they're all still in Hebrew. So um, they, they do tend to publish them in English, but uh, sometimes they do pick out a bit of stuff about Ithaca. So we'll maybe get the the flip side of that uh, and the answer to Ed's question uh, in a little bit. Uh, but for now, no thanks for that analysis there, Hamish. Uh, next, we'll, we will move on to Ed with... Well, yachts, oil and corruption in Nigeria. As well as these regular weekly news roundups on Energy Voice Out Loud, you'll also find lots of subject-specific box sets in the same feed. And I'm excited to be the anchor for one called the Megawatt Hour. Produced in paid partnership with BDO, the Megawatt Hour brings together experts from across the energy industry and across the world to examine the challenges and the opportunities of energy storage. As more of the grid gets its power from intermittent renewables, Energy storage technologies, and batteries in particular, are going to be an increasingly important feature of our infrastructure. Over the course of 10 monthly episodes, we'll be diving deep into the tech, the policy, and the challenges of building out energy storage to help you better understand its opportunities, wherever you work in the energy sector. Look out for episodes of the Megawatt Hour in Energy Voice Out Loud, as well as lots of other special episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, Ed, uh, well, I know people have a go at politicians here in the UK, but this looks quite extraordinary, uh, what's been going on in Nigeria. Take us take us through it. Yeah, it's been a bit of a sort of a, a, a long-running uh, kind of an issue, this. Um, so, so so, just to cast your, uh, your minds back to the halcyon days of 2015, there was a lot going on. Uh, but in Nigeria, uh, 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 one government was on its way out, another was on its way in. Uh, and so the then oil minister, uh, Dizani Alison Madueke, um, left, uh, left, left Nigeria, came to London, um, seemingly to, to, to seek, uh, uh, medical help for her, um, what, what seems to be a diagnosis of cancer. Um, got to London, was living here for a bit and then got arrested. Uh, which obviously cat among the pigeons. Um, there were a lot of questions there at that time around some of the deals that she was responsible for. Um, there were some kind of investigations domestically. And so between 2015 and now, it's uh, eight years as I make it by, by, my, uh, by my strict calculations. Um, so the, the, the National Crime Agency has finally uh, this week uh, said that, uh, you know, set out charges against 
Nigeria's former oil minister. So it feels like it's been a long time coming, but it's there have been some quite interesting um, twists and turns in the tale since since then. Um, so the domestic Nigeria's domestic anti-corruption agency has, has has sort of set out a number of charges against her, uh, and there have been various court actions. Uh, she, Various amounts of properties and assets have been confiscated domestically. Um, the U.S. has also uh, taken action against her, um, and 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 some of the uh, the uh, men that she was working with. Um, in March, there was a, there was an announcement from the U.S. saying that they'd recovered something like fifty three million dollars, particularly focused on on two guys, Kola Aluko and uh, Jaidi Omakori. Um, and so the, the, it's it's a substantial amount of uh, money that has been discussed. I mean, obviously, uh, quite how much money may have been uh, lost by the Nigerian state is not really clear. But uh, it's it's some some accounts have put it at more than a billion um, in this in these these just these two kind of two sets of deals. Um, and, and so it really seems to have focused on these 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 two businessmen, Omakori and Aluko. Who um, essentially the the charges suggest that they uh, provided uh, Diazani with uh, various uh, assets, including a number of properties in the UK. There are a number of uh, flats around uh, Regent's Park. Um, there's a house in Buckinghamshire. Um, they also provided furnishings. They provided cars, uh, private jets. Um, all uh, for uh, for for the uh, for Nigeria's former well then oil minister, and in return she gave them um, what were called uh, SAAs, which was a sort of a novel sort of type of of, of license agreement in in Nigeria at the time. Um, turns out it was novel for a reason, or at least that's the allegation. We should perhaps say. Um, so essentially, these guys came in and said, "Look, we can work with the with the with Nigeria's uh, oil company, and and we can provide the cash and the expertise needed to to kind of you know juice production in, in various licenses." They didn't do that. They just took the oil, sold the oil, uh, and made uh, seemingly filthy amounts of money. Um, so. It, the, 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 yes, so it's, it's it's been quite a fun story to follow, uh, and obviously more to come. So I I believe that uh, she's she's going to be in, she's going to have uh, her first day in court um, in uh, the start of October. So um, it would be uh, quite intriguing to see quite how it plays out. Wow, wow. Uh, okay, I mean, so I don't know where to start. I think I'll start here with my first question. Uh, you kind of went through some of the. Uh, extravagant kind of items on the, uh, dare I say, say shopping list. Uh, I see here you've mentioned, Ed, an, a 65-metre galactic star yacht. Um, what's the most extravagant thing we've come across here? And what on earth is a galactic star yacht? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I mean, it's one of those things, isn't it, that, I mean, I'm, I've, I'm, I've got no particular interest in yachts, but, uh, you know, they do come up every now and then. And it seems 65 metres, that feels like it's quite big. Um, and the fact that Mr. Aluko spent $82 million on it also suggests that it was a fairly substantial investment. I think, I mean, that, that was one of the, the most... Uh, interesting details that i think we saw in the in in, in the the uh, us uh, filings they actually uh, quote a point when um 
Duzani and is, is is speaking to Aluko on the phone, and um, she's basically telling him off. She's saying, "Look, if you want a yacht, just rent one for a couple of weeks. Don't spend eighty-two million dollars on it, because obviously that's going to raise some red flags." Uh, which you can't help but feel, yeah, that's that that is fair. Um, that 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 is that is presumably a lesson learned. Um, so yeah, so 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 the 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 yacht was um, you know had his, his his day in the sun. I think it, it then got seized and I think sold off uh, to 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 cover sort of various uh, various liens that were put on it in in sort of uh, US filings. So. Yeah, the I think I think the yacht probably takes the biscuit. Um, although I mean I think you know there were some other things. I mean I think um, so at, at one point uh, in the the, the US reporting uh, they talk about how Aluko had to buy identical sets of exercise equipment from uh, from Harrods to equip the uh, different houses that he has given to uh, Alison Madweki with, uh, with with the same amount of equipment. Um, so yes, there, there was there, there's there's a lot going on there, um, but it's 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 quite interesting. I suppose you know, kind of obviously, we're sort of seeing sort of progress in the UK, progress obviously in the US, the US reclaiming something like fifty three million dollars, um, but domestically, uh, she's very much on the front foot. So uh, earlier this year, she she announced that she was going to sue the EFCC, Nigeria's uh, Anti Corruption Commission, uh, for defamation. Um, clearly uh, decided that the best line of attack uh, was attack. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 quite a, a, an interesting story to see it play out. And I think there there is this kind of uh, fascinating sort of details of, you know, how, uh, you know, uh, people spend money uh, when you've just got more money than you can count. Um, but I think there's, there's also kind of a question there around how... Uh, uh, politics uh, in Nigeria have worked in the past uh, and, and obviously one that we would hope to see us move on from. So it'd be quite interesting to see how the Nigerian government does or does not support the UK's uh, UK's uh, attempts playing out now. And in terms of, I guess, you know, look, it feels like we have heard of various kind of business problems you've reported on in terms of doing work in Nigeria before, Ed, and I, I hate to paint it with a broad brush, but, you know, I mean, look, what kind of damage does this do reputationally, you know, or is it being seen as kind of par for the course seems a bit too strong, but I mean, what's what's it doing on, on that front? Is there anything in terms of people reassessing plans or perhaps not reassessing plans but just in terms of the reputation of doing business there and the the ministry itself yeah i mean i think i think that's a really valid question and i think it it is a challenge that nigeria has faced uh, and continues to face i mean i think um obviously you know every year uh, we we see a sort of a corruption's perception index kind of come out and and obviously it's it's um it's based not quite on so much how corrupt the country is but a, a, a how it's seen to be corrupt and so I think I do think that while these sorts of actions are clearly good to show that there are, you know, uh, there are recriminations if one if one errs, um, but obviously I think that also that there is a, there is a price to be paid, and I think you know people will see this as further evidence of of, of, of challenges in Nigeria. I mean, obviously, you know, it's it's kind of fairly historical, though there are some quite. Uh, I don't know, p- p- potential sort of links between people from that area who are still in government, which I think you know clearly we you know we would like to see Nigeria move on from. Um, 
I mean, you know, so there's a there's a new president. Uh, there's a chance for, uh, for 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 things to change, perhaps. Um, but it would be really good to see some some sort of strong action from the Nigerian government on this, right? And I think it is a problem that 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 Nigeria has faced and continues to face. And essentially, it's it's become something of a. I mean, the the, the challenges of investing in Nigeria are fairly obvious. Um, and it does feel that um, concerns around an uneven playing field are really high up there. When I talk to people uh, who are thinking about, you know, investing in, in in Nigerian assets, this is always one of those questions that they really have to 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 to, to take on really early on in the process. And uh, it's 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 really a question of of, of who you're doing business with. Um, so it's just another wrinkle in terms of uh, you know those 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 opportunities. I mean, I think you know talking earlier with uh, Hamish about the, uh, the the windfall tax domestically that is a barrier to investment in the North Sea. But you know, kind of corruption and insecurity are are, are very Nigerian barriers. Right. Yeah. Well, everywhere's got their got their issues there for sure. Uh, okay, well, thanks, Ed. I'm sure we'll be following that in more detail as we go. And next, we're back in the North Sea for an important new carbon-busting project. In a world where the scarcity of key resources is starting to be felt and the impact of climate change is all too apparent, sustainable growth is no longer a choice, it is a necessity. Sustainable Growth Voice is a new online publication championing individuals and organisations that are pushing sustainable growth forward, making a positive impact on the environment, society and the economy. From innovative technologies solving sustainability challenges to social enterprises promoting inclusive growth and transformative policy initiatives, SG Voice covers the fundamental drivers at the heart of the new sustainable economy. Join the conversation that the world needs now. Visit SG Voice for knowledge, inspiration and insight from across the sustainable growth landscape. Okay, so the UK North Sea has a problem on its hands. It needs to cut its emissions by 50% against the 2018 baseline by the year 2030. That's a huge number. And it's a very big challenge for some of the older platforms out there. And we have heard you know, time and again, um, you know, maybe some ways to, to cut cut through some of those those problems. Yes, you can operate more efficiently. We've even heard of, you know, various rigs and vessels looking at biofuels and things like that. But the received wisdom in the main is that you're not going to be able to hit this target unless you electrify those platforms. That's replacing the power generation from, you know, gas and diesel generators, which are huge pollutants offshore, uh, with clean electricity, either from shore or from uh, a project like a floating wind farm. So, you know, we have in the past heard from uh, Shell, for example, saying electrification is, you know, akin to open heart surgery in terms of the complexity. We've heard from Harbour Energy saying, uh, I'm paraphrasing here, but uh, at a conference that they would get more bang for their buck out of investment in carbon capture and storage rather than electrification. But nonetheless, these targets remain. And we have now, uh, we've talked about the windfall tax today, but as part of that legislation, there are indeed subsidies for electrification projects. And with that, lo and behold, we seem to have a bit of progress going here on something called the Central North Sea Electrification Project. So we've been drip-fed a bit of info here and there on that. There's been the odd webinar here, the odd um, conference presentation there. 
But thanks to uh, a rogue posting, I think, on the Marine Scotland's website, uh, we've got on this 200-plus page scoping report detailing much, not all, but much of the project's plans. So this is, an, in a nutshell, uh, plans to electrify four major Central North Sea hubs with power from shore. That's BP's ETAP, Harbour Energy's Judy, Total's Elgin, and Shell's Shearwater. So what does the report tell us? Well, on top of hundreds of miles of cables, as you'd expect to uh, to make this project happen, it's going to involve significant new infrastructure. We've had also some details in terms of timelines and where there might be some you know landfall locations here for this uh, major uh, new project in the North Sea. So we're looking at uh, a 60 meter offshore converter station, effectively a new platform equidistant between the four uh, existing installations. Uh, we're going to possibly need uh, two new bridge-linked installations to be attached to these uh, two of the four kind of existing platforms. We, did, we don't know which of the four, but um, between that and the cables, it's going to be a, a, this is going to be a significant amount of new infrastructure put in place for these platforms, which the reason why this is happening is obviously they're going to be producing out past 2030, which is when the target hits. So why do we think it could happen? Well, uh, according to the scoping report, they're targeting December of 2028 for first power. So I think that's the first, you know, meaningful um, concrete black and white target we've seen for this in terms of, you know, seeing an actual project up and running in advance of those targets and, uh, you know, actually delivering uh, electricity to these installations. Um, what we don't know, we don't know by how much this will reduce emissions per platform. Uh, the report doesn't say that and doesn't really give us much detail there. Um, it's possible they, they don't know yet. And of course, they're doing more studies and, and scoping things out. This is um, power from shore. It's not power from floating wind, for example. And I, I mentioned that because we had the high wind Tampin project up and running in Norway this week, um, which is delivering power to five platforms over in the Norwegian sector, and th that project is going to kind of it's going to cut around two hundred thousand tons of CO two per year through partial electrification. So that's very significant. Um, to give you a sense of things, um, according to some of the data that's out there, seventy one percent or thereabouts. That's these diesel uh, and uh, diesel and gas generators, that's how much of the overall emissions in the North Sea these are producing. It's it's hard to overstate just how important they are in terms of kind of the emissions out there from the upstream sector. So it's really crucial to get on with this. Uh, and as I say, you know, the North Sea transition deal signed in gov with the government in 2021 commits the industry to cutting these emissions. So yeah, um, a lot of questions whether it could be hit. The timeline here seems to suggest it can be. And we've got a little bit of detail too on the landfall locations. Um, so the three locations that have been kind of set out here, um, and basically they're all kind of around the Peterhead uh, area, uh, not quite in Peterhead, but around it. Um, would there be any particular protest to that, I wonder? Um, hopefully not. Um, what they're you know, that area is kind of familiar, I think, with, you know, projects coming to shore. If you think of the St. Fergus gas plant being a very significant one um, with kind of infrastructure going out and having landfall around there. Um, so, so yeah, some, some positive forward momentum, I think, after some 
fairly, I guess, uh, negative connotations um, around around this project initially. Do you have any idea about uh, about about costs uh, and and I suppose about who would be footing the bill? Is it like a combination of the, the the oil companies themselves that that had to put up that investment. It's a very good question. Uh, it was my first one uh, when I, I saw this uh, two two hundred plus page uh, document, uh, and and the answer is the answer is no. Um, I don't know whether they would uh, disclose that in in any real uh, detail or not. It, it may be once contracts start coming out that we might get a bit of that. Um, but I mean, look, if we look at you know, I guess. It's a, it's a power from shore project, so I don't really know. I don't think I have anything here that I could compare it to. What I might do is look at um, floating wind as different costs, so it wouldn't really be a fair comparison. But I guess what we might do, just as a, a, a to give you some kind of idea, if you look at high wind tampon, certainly that's hundreds of millions of pounds, um, but that's floating wind versus uh, power from shore. So there'll be different metrics. Um, I think. I think. That region or more is probably fair, considering the modifications you're looking at for the platforms themselves, for the new substation, the cabling. Um, but I don't, I don't really know what the costs are. I don't know if we're ever going to get that. But it is a, a very good question uh, and and the right one to ask. I've also had people uh, this week asking, "Yo, power from shore? Where are they going to get the power from?" Well, again, uh, they haven't really said that. But I suppose, you know, um, the the UK is not is not going to be. It's not going to be lacking for um, renewable power projects in the near term, and places to it's places to send that power. That's the problem. So if there's you know um, offtake options here for uh, a North Sea offshore uh, project, then one would think that'd be welcomed. Uh, I think they probably have their choice of uh, choice of items as to where they would get that power from. Uh, would be my uh, how I would imagine it. Um, all of this, of course, and then you know getting into the landfall stuff. All of this is, you know, it, it is subject to uh, a planning application to the the local council. Um, there will be, you know, more assessments over, um, you know, where the actual they will eventually whittle that down into one location, where there might be some more problems. Um, you know, there are shipping lanes uh, in and around here. There are other projects with cables. Um, one of the projects that's mentioned is the the Green Vault. Uh, floating wind development. Um, there is potential for a degree of overlap there in terms of this cabling. It didn't seem like there was any kind of undue concern over that. I mean, it, it seems like it's uh, certainly a barrier that can be overcome. Um, but I think I think the thing that's interesting to me is that you know we, we've had a, a degree of 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 dourness around electrification uh, for all the complaints there's been about the energy profits levy. The fact of the matter is, you know, for every hundred pounds you spend on decarbonisation, you're going to get 109 pounds back now, and they've got to do this. So at least it's had it seems to be having this kind of positive impact. Um, so I suppose that ties into your question of cost set. I mean, maybe the more pertinent question is how much is the taxpayer paying for it? Um, and perhaps that could come out in due course. Um, but that's where we are with that. It's just the one thing. Uh, people always say that power from shore is, is probably the best um, method for electrification for platforms that are quite close to the shore because these cables are incredibly costly, really difficult to lay. And I suppose the longer they are, the more chance there could be a fault on route. These platforms are not particularly close to shore. Um, it's, it just seems like it's it. No, it seems like it's an odd tactic to pick, um, given the the chat that we've heard. But I mean, given that the, in the UK that there's nothing really to measure it against currently, um, 
perhaps it's perhaps it's fair. I, I don't know. I mean, I I, I, I don't know. What, I mean, I, I hope that we can uh, speak to some of the people behind this project and, and get a real sense as to why. Certainly, they, there have been project uh, people on webinars and that in the past talking about why they went for um, uh, power from shore. Um, I, yeah, I think I don't know if that's a scene is more reliable. Certainly, if we look at the alternative. Uh, floating offshore wind, clearly that's still still a relatively nascent technology. I mean, we've just had kind of, uh, as I said, uh, high wind tampon come in and, and that has really cut down the costs of floating wind. But yeah, it'd be good to see some sort of comparator as to, I guess, the cost or indeed, what are the other considerations? Why did you go for power from shore versus, you know, floating wind? The scoping report doesn't really get into that i'm sure there are people i dare say people listening to the podcast who can maybe answer that and hey if you fancy coming on and having a chat about it we'd love to have you um but yeah that's that's the lay of the land at the moment i think the point about the cabling is is pertinent uh hamish and, and it'd be really good to get more detail on that and hopefully that will come uh before too long um but there we are, and that is it for this episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. And a little bit of a, a sad uh, milestone for us here. This will, in fact, be Hamish Penman's uh, final outing on the Evolve podcast uh, after a, a strong contribution over the years. Uh, Hamish, how are you feeling about that? Yeah, it's quite an odd thought. Um, it's going to be odd, odd on Wednesday evenings, not thinking, oh, God, I've got the pod on Thursday morning. Sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it's... <clears throat> Oh, I've loved it. Obviously, it's been it's been very good fun and, and a nice new way of connecting with connecting with readers and stuff. And yeah, it's going to be it's a bit sad to not doing it, and and sad indeed to to not be part of the the EV team anymore. It's been it's been a cracking three and a bit years. So yeah, thanks everyone. Yeah, no, but you've been fantastic, Hamish, and we're all gonna we're all gonna miss you. But we're wishing you best of luck for for Pastors New. Uh, and I'm sure if you want to find out a bit more about what Hamish is up to, just uh, get in touch with him or check out on his uh, social media. I'm sure we'll be hearing more about that in due course uh so uh ed uh, gonna miss hamish absolutely I, I i've often thought of you hamish as the rock upon which any voice out loud has has been built so uh it's, just, it's, it's gonna be a sad loss for us all the rock god what a sugly rock <laughs> that's very worrying no i did, did, did thank you ed but we, we still never met in person we are still we still literally communicate via energy voice out loud so <laughs> so that's gonna be our one avenue of communication separate <laughs> But no, I will be co- I will be coming to you with press releases for <laughs> emerging markets soon. I can tell you that much for free. There you go. What a promise. There we are. There we are. Okay. Well, on that note, well, look, uh, thanks, Ed, and thanks for the last time uh, to Hamish for joining us on Energy Voice Out Loud. That is it for this week's episode. We'll be back next week. And thanks for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.